Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey, welcome everyone to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Covert, and tonight I am going to have fun because my friend and colleague, Scott Thomas is joining us, and Scott and I really relate with the type of animal training experience we've had. So, Scott, you've trained a lot of dogs to do very demanding things, but do you consider yourself a dog trainer? I I guess I consider myself more an animal trainer than just a dog trainer, though the greatest breadth of the experience is dogs. Okay. And having said that, I don't want to in any way gloss over the breadth of your other experience. Do you want to share with us uh, some of the animals you've worked with in addition to dogs? Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) Well, let's see. Um, I went to the University of Oklahoma. Okay. Um, My introduction to a uh, psychology professor was Roger Phelps, who was working with Washoe the Chimpanzee. Mm. That was kind of my introduction, though I kind of wanted to get into that private institute. Fate had other plans. Um, while at the University of Oklahoma, I drove the Sooner Schooner for two or three years, uh, the mascot for the Oklahoma Sooners. Um, <laughs> uh, somewhere in the middle of that, I started uh, working with dogs. Um, first, just kind of individual clients, like we all start out for long. I had a small boarding kennel, much not longer after that, I became a veterinary assistant for five years for a very brilliant man who taught me more about veterinary medicine than I think you could learn in school. Mm. Um, who was in the that middle man? of, all of <laughs> who was that man? In the middle that, um, uh, somewhere along the way, my wife decided she wanted to join the air force. And we were moving to Bloxy, Mississippi. Okay. Um, I had made some good friends up at the Oklahoma City Zoo. I had a friend, a great friend that worked in the Herpetarium. And he used to always get me kind of free passes and stuff. And I'd always go in. When, when I had the baby on my day off, I would take the baby up and we'd visit the dolphin show, which had been a dream of mine since high school age. I grew up in Fort Walton Beach and spent a lot of time hanging out in the audience at Gulfarium, hoping somebody would just figure out I was there and offer me a job, which never happened because there's like thousands. So uh, I ended up uh, having a contact, went down to the facility that was mentioned in in Gulfport, Mississippi. Um, Initially, I drove up um, to try and get a job and kind of what I had in my perceptions and my dreams of being the the upper end of what would be marine mammal work uh, was kind of an old, old facility held together with blue paint and rust. Mm. Um, I kind of drove away um, a little bit down the road. I kind of needed a job worse and kind of camped out on their doorstep till they hired me. Um, got put on uh, with a dolphin collection crew at that point. Um, that company was collecting more dolphins. Um, for private institutions internationally, as well as collecting dolphins for the Navy. Um, I want to say the the pay was something like $25 a day and lunch. <laughs> mm. um, to ride around a boat all day long wasn't too bad. At the end of the collection season, um, they put me on the training staff. Um, and I worked there on and off for about five years. Um, Towards the end of that, um, this is horrible. There's so many back channels. Um, towards the end of that, my wife had an opportunity for us to move to Germany. And I had involved, been involved in the sport of Schutzen for, oh, Lord, about 10 or 15 years at that time. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to move to Germany. We went to Germany right when the wall was coming down. So what was a giant military need dwindled quickly. Um, I did teach obedience classes with the USO in Germany, which made me laugh because you literally cannot throw a rock out the window of your car without hitting a nice dog training place or dog training club in Germany. 
And now Americans are paying me just because I'm an American, not because of necessarily the highest quality of training. Um, I had uh, the opportunity at that point uh, to come back to the United States, um, move back to the United States. Um, I worked for a time uh, in an exotic zoo, um, capuchins, spider monkeys, uh, ostriches, kangaroo, bobcats, lynx, uh, a couple of cougars. Um, so I got to do that for a little bit of time. Um, after, after that, um, we moved to uh, Virginia? No, moved to South Carolina. South Carolina started club, dog club. Dog club turned into an eco-cruise business. Eco-cruise business did extremely well. Um, showing the various school groups the uh, uh, different uh, ecosystems uh, in the Charleston Harbor, uh, the beach, um, the estuaries. Um, I think I even called you at one point because I was watching Dolphin Stranding while doing a school group and couldn't get anybody to understand how significant it was. But the yeah. strand feeding was awesome to watch, other than I was trying to keep kids back from Flipper running around with 108 razor sharp teeth. Um, Left that, um, moved back to Oklahoma, um, and in Oklahoma, I, I got a contract to work at the Oklahoma City Zoo, the same company I'd worked with before. In the middle of all that, still doing dog training, um, and I found out about a job announcement at Lackland Air Force Base um, to be working for the a breeding program that was being started up as a joint opportunity between the Transportation Security Administration the Department of Defense did that for about 15 years. Um, about 600 dogs did behavioral assessments at three, six, nine, and 12 months. Learned a ton of information, got well connected with the International Working Dog Breeding Association the Inter and the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, um, both working as a moderator and a planner for those conferences. Um, my time you know, with TSA. Uh, Bush Gardens. Oh, yeah. So South Carolina went to Virginia. Virginia, then I went to Lackland. Now, actually, Virginia went to Oklahoma, Oklahoma, back to Virginia, Virginia, back to Texas. <laughs> um, again, I started out as an Air Force brat, so all the moving around is quite continual. Um, yeah, yeah. The Bush Gardens, uh, I got hired on. Uh, Joe Carvalho had a contract show with Water Country, um, which is sister park to Bush Gardens. Um, did that bird show for a summer. Um, it was kind of funny. I was considerably older than all the kids that were working there. Um, interviewed. The interview was funny for the fact that um, uh, I'm all interested in the animals. There was another young kid there being interviewed at the same time. He's all standing back. I think they had a uh, they had an Andean condor and they had a lesser lesser adjutant stork in cages, and I'm like you know, foolishly me poking my fingers in cages, talking about show schedules, talking about how much time to be preparation, what the script looked like, all that kind of stuff. Never heard anything back. I was like, okay, I'm just too old for the job, and it was just waiting to get back a hold of the owner of the business in order to get approval, and did that for a summer. Um, after that, moved to Oklahoma City. After Oklahoma City, then moved to Texas um, to do wow. the Lackland thing. Lackland thing lasted for a while. Then I worked for a couple of years in American Kennel Club, setting up a patriotic puppy program, trying to see if we could get um, your average American to raise puppies for federal service. Um, learned a lot, um, uh, good and bad. Um, that contract ended, and with that, I then came to Georgia, and now I'm running a service dog for veterans program. And our 30 minutes is up. It's nice talking with you, Casey. <laughs> really, really. You know what? That's so interesting uh, to me, all of that, because we've known each other for years, and I, I've, you know, we just talk about each place here, there. But there's way more there than I had any idea of. And I'm sure I've. <laughs> well, you probably forgot some, like you know, when I said, "Hey, Bush Gardens," but the moving, the different uh, 
kinds of animals, the different kinds of applications. And your dog applications, you did some obedience or problem solving at the beginning, but a lot of your dog training is for programs. It evolved to that. Yeah. 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 Um, again, I mean, I, I did a post, I think on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago talking about how life just affords us great opportunities. And I just kind of laugh at all the opportunities. I've had a lot of young people come up to me and say, how can I do what you have done? And I'm like, there's just no way. I mean, it was just right place, right time, enough of the skill set, get your foot in the door. Um, you know, when I got to train job training dolphins, I thought it was about hanging out with flipper all day long. Nobody told me about scrubbing pools and vacuuming and thawing fish, you know, all uh, the stuff fish. that goes on for forever. You know, the smallest portion of your day is probably spent with the animals because there's so much other work that needs to be yeah. done. Um, and again, it's then you heavy, heavy physical work. Oh, heavy physical work. You know, we had to do dive shows, bird shows at that facility was considered kind of the low tier, you know, that got cast off to somebody who was brand new. Um, so that was unusual. I made good friends with some of the bird trainers. So I ended up doing shows just to be in support of or camaraderie of them. But, um, those birds were had been doing shows for like 40 years and they were just ornery. They, I can't imagine the number of trainers those poor birds had seen. <laughs> that, they, that they had trained, right? And I would have thought that was the end of my bird career until down the road. Then, you know, I have another opportunity to work with birds. And I, I, it was an amazing experience. It was, it was a water park. So the show quality didn't necessarily have to be the highest in the world. It was, a place for people to be entertained between, you know, eating lunch and going to the next water ride. Mm. Uh, it was really interesting. I had a great time. And of course we were right across the street from Bush gardens and there was separate bird shows there. And I, you know, we went back and forth all the time. Um, and that was just, that's, I was almost a hiccup of a career. And the fact that I was just looking for something to fill. Um, right. It was so hard to get work when, uh, all the shipping yards uh, were on strike. So there were so many people in Newport News and Virginia Beach area that were, you know, just desperate for any work while they were waiting for this, this strike to get over. Um, so it was really difficult to find work. Glad to find that. And then from there, you know, um, uh, went back to the Oklahoma City Zoo uh, for about a year. Um, and again, there's so much information, you know, when you're working in a zoo environment, you know, you're, you're working cross species, had a great opportunity to meet Gary Priest from San Diego Zoo. Jane Goodall gave a lecture there. That was amazing. Um, so again, you forge some of those relationships you wouldn't get in, um, the man that ran the water quality for the facility was just a genius. And I probably learned a whole lot more from wa about water quality from him than I had learned previous though. I don't know with your contracts or with your shows, you know, we had to do our own water quality, which just yeah. becomes its own. I did at National Zoo. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's, that's some of the most heartbreaking work because you're going home trying to chill. And then your mind is like, which way was the pH going when I left? <laughs> uh, so. yeah, my, my dad used to say about physics and chemistry and so on. This is an exact science you know, versus biology, right? And it's not at all exact. <laughs> like, yeah. I've even personally had, just with electronics experiences where people try to set up my system to give a seminar or something, nothing works. And they try it again, nothing works. And now they're starting to panic I turn off the thing. I access my dad who passed already. And I say, hey, dad, electrical engineer, right? Uh, could you check this out? Plug it back in. It all works. And the, literally the engineer that was there was like, what? What did you do? So, you know, as we go through all these jobs, we have to keep learning all these different all the, skills. All the time. Yeah. Best friend in high school who ended up being an electrical engineer contracted by the Navy. And I wanted so desperately from high school on to build my own hydrophone. Mm. And when I was young, 
I, you know, you try to think of the simplest way and just none of it seemed to work. So I asked my buddy, well, you're an electrical engineer. And of course, his answer was, well, you need to ask one of my technicians. And I'm like, <laughs> years later, when I was working in Gulfport, they wanted to set up a listing post um, at one of the feeding pools. And, you know, somebody had showed me a diagram from the Navy on a hydrophone. I'm like, oh, that's easy. I'd never seen it laid out that way before. And I played yeah. a little bit of electronics. So I, I, I built the thing. I put it together. Um, and, you know, there we are sitting with this, these hydrophones that were handmade sitting in the water. And they were just beautiful. And that ended up being an opportunity. We had another program down in Central America and set up another listening post there. And again, it's quite amazing to listen to them. Now we even got to the point where we, the hydrophones I made could either be speakers or be microphones. Mm -hmm. So I could I could hook them into the back of a sampling computer and we could take dolphin sounds and play them back, um, you know, with different frequencies. The dolphins. And, yeah. Wow. And I learned a lot about volume and water because first time I did it, what I thought was fairly quiet for this little sampling keyboard was apparently quite loud for the animals so yeah well it, it, i've noticed that too like you just even in your bathtub you put your head under water and it is so noisy well the first time i had a dolphin threaten me with a jaw pop i couldn't imagine the amount of volume there is in an animal six feet six inches away from you is just popping his jaws underwater what'd very, you very do <laughs> what'd you do to make him angry but he was a he was a pre-act animal for our guests. Everything before the Marine Mammal Protection Act, nineteen seventy-two, the animals were just considered pre-act because no pe paper or was necessarily around. So he was a pre-act animal. He had learned. I, I think he he could echolocate on your heart, and he could tell whether you were a newbie or whether you'd been in there before. Yeah, and if you were a newbie. He he came to play with you. <laughs> <laughs> what are you made of buddy <laughs> and, and you and i were talking the other day and like you're sitting there and here's an animal who's who's threatening you his teeth were so dull i mean if he tried to bite me it, it, the pressure might have hurt a little bit but he wasn't going to draw blood and i'm just trying to figure out how to establish you know our roles and i just grabbed him by the rostrum shoved him backwards dolphins don't like going backwards <laughs> Um, that that is just fairly unnatural to them. And he left me alone for all the other years I worked with him. Wow. So, uh, but you know, he, he just answered he his for question. Say it Go again. Ahead. You broke up. He just had to establish his dominance. I had to let him know I was there and everything worked out. Wow. That's really something. So um, Scott mentioned, but in case you didn't catch it, in 1972, all of a sudden, marine mammals were protected and we had to document them and keep them according to very specific rules and not always helpful rules. For example, I know that at National Zoo, we had to give them a lot of space. Uh, these were seals and sea lions, a lot of haul out space, space where they could come out of the water and sleep. And it was very expensive because it was all done to mimic natural rock work. And it cost millions of dollars. But seals and sea lions are both thigmotactic, which means they like to sleep piled up on each other. So they had all this huge beach, which took up their water space that, you know, like you could have spent that on water space instead. But these seals and sea lions would all sleep stacked up on each other on a little island in the middle. They didn't use any of those other areas. So that's some of what came with the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So yeah, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of things in the Marine Mammal Protection Act. You had to have a PhD on staff now in order to hold the animals. Um when we were collecting animals, which no longer occurs, um, you know, you had to have a USDA observer on the boat. Um, and again, the paperwork was, you know, you, you had to document all your water quality, you had to document all your, your feeding and your show schedules. Um, they regulated how much diet you could cut in any given day. And again, those records weren't just written down, but could be inspected at any point in time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, 
big deal. So, um, gosh, we could even talk just about, we could talk about any of these things for a long time. And it's just so <laughs> fascinating to me to just think about it, to, you know, to reflect on what you're saying. I remember at National Zoo, I was the only unit at the time that always passed the um, surprise USDA tests or uh, inspections. And yeah. yet we would still have things that we would get dinged on, like cobwebs in the top of the Bush Dog building. What? You know, like those things come up every day. And then there were, you know, some of the other things that were, you know, like the haul out space, like, why do we do this? But overall, it is really good that we kept evolving. And one, oh, of, yeah. the, one of the things that I have been trying to follow is that whole gene deficiency that all the marine mammals have. Do you know what I'm talking about? The POE1 gene, I think is what it is. No. Okay. I am not. Well, um, we'll talk about it again another time. But in short, it it's linked to the fact that they lost their legs. And most of the marine mammals, including all the serenia, the dugongs and the manatees, all the cetaceans, and most of the phocidae or the seals and the pinnipedia or the sea lions are all missing a gene that allows them to detox organophosphates. Mm. So all these people, all these um, animal rights activists want to send animals that are in managed care right now into sea pens. And they are unrealistic about the dangers of sea pens on many different levels. But also, we need to be addressing this problem. Because if we cannot find a therapy for this, it is currently estimated that with the pollution rate of the oceans, with organophosphates and so on, that all marine mammals will be extinct by the turn of the next century. So, yeah, know, I, I had a dear friend who was living down on on the coast, the Gulf Coast, when they had that big oil rig spill and talk about something that was incredibly underreported. I mean, they had oh. babies wash dolphin babies washing up all the time. And again, you know, some of that stuff got into the food chain and, you know, it, it would last for years. And again, that's one of the largest populations of dolphins in the world, that whole yes. Mississippi area. But, you know, when, when they're getting hit with, you know, a, a ton of crude oil and then it's completely underreported. And again, the irony being now I have a dear friend who does uh, oil spill uh, indication with his dogs um, because it gets well deep within the sand if it's been there. And so, oh. you know, now the oil companies are paying dogs to go out there find the oil so they can dig it up, clean it up and, and, and do a better job with it. Wow. Again, it all, it all comes, it always, it always gets all over top of each other. Yeah. That's really something. Well, remember, I mean, you might've even known these dolphins personally, but after the Katrina storm. Yeah. And it washed um, MAP facility out to sea and released yeah. all the dolphins and those dolphins were looking for the trainers when the trainers went out to see, you know, if everybody, if they could find anybody, the dolphins started doing flips and bows and everything else. And they could have stayed at large, but they cooperated to come up, get in slings. And these were dolphins that had been moved all over the place. Yep. So they yep. all knew what a sling was. It wasn't like, Oh yeah, I'll cooperate with you. What? You're going to move me? No, they're like take us out of here. Yeah. And so apparently um the owner who I did not know and and you probably do 
was in his 80s at the time and decided he wasn't going to rebuild MAP. And so called people all over the place. And finally, the Atlantis Hotel agreed to take them on as an entire group. There's eight or nine dolphins in the group. And out of those eight or nine dolphins, they all had the choice to come or go. And there was one dolphin that was hesitant. But in the end, she decided to go also. And I think that's just so significant that you talk about underreported. We underreport the problems, but also we underreport the fact that our work with animals is always, has always been a partnership. Like we are working. Oh, to man. Yeah, to try to benefit them. And that's why you're still people working. Don't people don't understand the amount of research that was going on. We had a, a, a woman that was working on her master's degree up in Hattiesburg. And she started looking for uh, immune responses to foreign proteins. So she knew more about dolphin immunology. What was a master's degree? Immediately became a PhD. It was brilliant work. Some of the earlier work where they were trying to fight off the pneumonias uh, with aerosyphilis injections to the dolphins, trying to do that. Uh, pneumonia being has to be one of the top disease problems within the dolphin population. And, yeah. you know, I worked real hard at creating, uh, in cooperation with the Oklahoma State University, creating a nebulizer so that we could treat um, the, the pneumonias topically instead of systemically. Amazing. Amazing. Problem with that whole process was the only way they could prove the penetration was not feasible. I don't think it's feasible today because they would have to do some kind of a radioisotope to see how deep the penetration was in the lungs um, to see if it was working or not. So the only people that ever wanted to use the device already had an animal that was really, really ill, mm -hmm. and they're just going for the effort. So um, yeah, yeah, and again, that was amazing. My well, that was my veterinary career, you know, and, and, and I remember talking with a gentleman, I believe he's now the primary veterinarian for the United States Navy's dolphin program. And we kept talking about um, how to make a device to, to deliver nebulized medication. My daughter at the time uh, had really bad uh, asthma. And so she had that breathing treatments. And I'm like, well, we can do this for a kid. And again, for her, she didn't wear a mask. You just kind of held it near her face and she breathed it in and out. Mm -hmm. I think we sat around talking about how to treat a dolphin. The problem was that if you had a column under a, a tent of air, the problem is that dolphin, the first thing he does is expire, I don't yeah. know how many liters of air in a split second, so that column is gone. So years later, I had a friend, and we started playing with PVC and ping pong balls and figured out how to make a valve where they could expire. The column would stay completely stable, and then when they inspired the valve, the, the the ping pong balls would switch and they could take that whole column down in. Wow. Wow. So again, when you're keeping an animal, when you take on that responsibility, you're thinking about everything. everything. We talked about water quality. We talked about, um, you know, veterinary care. You, you have to know all of that. Jay Sweeney did an entire book on uh, blowhole exodus. Wow. Have you ever seen that book. And again, looking at all the different things that are down in the dolphin's blowhole, what is normal, what is not. And apparently if you stain the slides, you could anticipate infections by looking at white cells on the blowhole exit. Wow. And it's just whole slide over the blowhole. And again, we wouldn't know that stuff. We wouldn't be able to transfer that stuff to the wild populations had we not had that close and personal contact with them. Well, this is so important because many people don't realize that this is a breathe in, breathe out situation. There are no facilities in the United States that are not directly linked to supporting wild populations and wild habitats. It's required for our accreditation as well as just because we wanna solve those problems. Well, and I think I think we need to prioritize those problems when people complain about marine mammals in captivity. And I've had discussions with a lot of young people. There's there's certainly uh, discussions to be had on both sides of the coin. And those discussions have 
turned into raised care for animals um, over time. Um, but the, 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 when we're, we're worried about the small population of animals that are being used for research and education, um, we're not addressing that giant patch of plastic in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is, yeah, you know, on acre upon acre of plastic. I would rather we attack that problem first uh, before we start attacking, you know, what I think is a lesser problem and a problem that isn't a problem, a problem that actually benefits the wild animals as much. Um, the species survival plan is another excellent example, you know, of yes. animals that are introduced to the wild through great cooperation between the zoos. Yes. Yeah. And like you say about the um, plastic we also have the problems, and, and this is getting back to the risks of sea pens, where the, the chemical changes in the oceans, the acidification of the oceans, the changes in the temperature, we're getting way more jellyfish and other fish stocks are decreasing. We're getting way more uh, toxic algae blooms. So not last year, but the year before. So they had red tide blooms going on off the Gulf Coast of Florida for over 18 months. And even the humans that live in Florida are clueless. They're clueless that this is a cumulative toxin that can get carried in the wind that you're exposed to that can really increase your risk of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and dementia. And that... Yep. You know, we have that in the Erie, the Lee population, where we have a pocket of significantly higher ALS because of the blue algae blooms in Lake Erie. So there's all kinds of things, like you say, that we need to take care of first. Where you, you can't take an animal like this whole thing about Lolita just really disturbs me. You're going to take a 50-year-old whale and take her back to Puget Sound, where just by traveling like that, she's got a three times greater than normal chance of dying in the next year. And then you're going to have her also have to adapt to a totally different lifestyle. And you're introducing her to an area where all the local whales are in starvation mode because they are dependent on endangered Chinook salmon and they're not eating other things that might be available to them. So endangered whales dependent on endangered fish and then you're gonna throw an elderly whale into that mix with some you know, airy concept that maybe her mother's gonna recognize her and come back and greet her and she's gonna have a great time and get taken in by her family and all that. That would be nice, but man, I wouldn't want them making my end of life decisions for me. And again, I, I, I look at both sides of the argument and again, the emotions on both sides of the argument. I, I Economically, I think the amount of money they're going to say spend on that single animal that people are forming an emotional attachment for, I just think how much more that money could do um, for the wild populations. You know, yeah. we're right now we're looking at the whales beating up the boats and in, in, in off the Strait of Gibraltar, which I just think is yeah. amazing. Yeah, like that hasn't been any place else. And all these people are coming forward and saying it's because of trauma. Again, let's take the money and study it. Um, yeah, I agree. I, Nice report that says they've seen those patterns of behaviors in 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 uh, uh, the orcas before, and um, whether it's trauma or not, it's it's that learned behavior. You know what was it with the those Japanese macaques that you know were, were doing all the washing, yeah, washing and everything. Washing the you grain, know? right? They, there was a point where they had never done that, and then almost a, a spontaneous level of learning occurred in the entire population. And now we're seeing that in the killer whale. Nobody wants to address, address the basic problem was, you know, a hundred years ago, the amount of boats the killer whale would run into is minimal, especially smaller boats. And now it's it's a much larger number. Yeah. Um, and we need to heal those 
with those problems. And again, I, I wish we had the Jane Goodalls and Diane Fossey's of, of the world. And we have Randy Wells and uh, a couple other people out there that do that work. But there needs to be that level of study so we can anticipate yeah. what's going on and that problem. You know, the same yeah. thing as, as the manatees and, you know, encroachment upon their habitat. Um, a shrinking habitat, an animal that is so over-specialized that with that habitat shrinking, it's just not a good number. You know, is there is there a way we can do that? Can we create, find some barrier islands that would be acceptable and, and you know, get them, get them rehabituated to an area where they can um, survive better? I don't know. Um, again, I, I understand both sides of the arguments and I, I just think there's wiser ways to spend the money than, you know, an emotional response uh, to a single animal when there's hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of animals here. Yeah. But, but people that are in the business of getting money from emotional people have recognized that it's way easier to get people all fired up about one individual. It reminds me of during desert storm, which was in the nineties. Um, there was a woman in Florida I think her name was Terry Shava and she had left a do not resuscitate order and her family was against, you know, her husband wanted to follow that and her family wanted to preserve her. And while all these thousands and thousands of young people are dying in this conflict, all this focus was directed to one person who had already said what she wanted. You know, there was no predicted possibility that she was ever going to be able to be conscious again and everything else. And the whole dilemma was just, do you let her die or do you uh, keep her on life support? And so it's like, we have to really be aware of these manipulations. Like we should have been thinking about like you're saying, the thousands and thousands rather than the one case that's being used. Oh, for sure. And again, we, we see it in so many areas, you know, in Mississippi, they have, you know, the least turn protected um, hatching areas. And I mean, everybody plays by the rules there. Um, so when you see that, you know, we can make a difference. You know, the recovery of the bald eagle, uh, you know, from the DDT in the 60s yeah. and 70s. We know we can make a difference, but we can't make that difference if we don't know how to care for these animals. Um, yes. and again, that that care. Um, I, I remember I was I was doing a dolphin show for a park that was owned at the time by Paramount. Paramount had just released Free Willy. And so the park had decided, you know, that they weren't going to have marine mammals anymore because, you know, can't be on both sides of the coin. And then somebody had written an article, I think, in a magazine, kind of one of those coffee table magazines, Ocean Realms, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And you had this woman who was an editor for that magazine who lived in New York, flew to Seattle, um, rented a car, uh, got a boat captain, rented a boat went out and looked at the killer whales and said, this is magnificent. My argument being is that's wonderful. You can afford that. How do we get that information to the rest of the world? So we change our mind again, dolphin safe tuna comes to mind where we, 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 we could take an issue, make it a big campaign. And it, it was a win-win for everybody yeah. um, in the long haul. Though the shrimpers might disagree for, yeah, for yeah. some. Um, yeah, but like so, you say, like for you studying the nebulizer, it isn't just the dolphins that are in managed care that have these lung problems. These are endemic. The most common disease of the intercoastal dolphins are lung diseases like histoplasmosis and asthma and so on. And you talked about one important contribution. Dolphins Plus taught their dolphins to voluntarily come up on body boards, get strapped down. They take them in the van to the local MRI place where they have a relationship. And the dolphins have learned to cooperate with the MRI. 
and they literally monitor the condition of their lungs and the progress that they're making against, uh, you know, the treatments and everything in order for us to help the other animals. Like you said, we have to know what they need and what their problems are. And we have to try the solutions and see if they work. Um, I, I, I agree. I had I had a couple of partners at the Oklahoma City Zoo that um, one of the gentlemen that worked there was actually the son of the first flipper in the movie trainer. Mm. And he had figured out how to teach dolphins to swallow fresh water. And the problem is anytime we have a disease process in a dolphin and we put them on antibiotics, they usually lose their appetite. So now they're not ingesting fish, which is their largest supply of water. And... Um, you know, they're feeling crummy. And he had he had just worked with these animals and taught them to swallow water. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant process. And again, now we know how to do that. I've been there when you take the, the little hypodermic and try to put so much fresh water inside a herring and, and give it to them. And, you know, yeah. you're lucky if you get 10 cc's of water extra in that fish. But we, he learned how to do that. Now we have yet another tool by which we yeah. can save and extend their life. And that may very easily translate to animals in the wild. Should we get into a mass stranding situation or rehab situation? Another friend from MAP went on to National Aquarium in Baltimore um, and he established a huge uh, rehab center. That kind of area was kind of dead for it because there's not enough SeaWorlds, which covers a lot of rehab. People don't understand how many more animals have been rehabbed by SeaWorld than they've ever used in in, a, in their facilities right and um, how much additional research like carl hubbs institute yeah about things that aren't going to directly benefit SeaWorld at all no just no collecting you know supporting information to just keep expanding the body of knowledge about this entire group of animals well, he had he had a sick animal at National Aquarium, and one of the, he wrote a brilliant paper about the fact that when you're rehabbing an animal, you shouldn't be feeding them on a show schedule. <laughs> you know, you need to be you need to be feeding them randomly, or at least simulate more of what they'd be doing in the wild. Because if you get them on a show schedule and eating so much fish, they may have a hard hard time uh, going back in. I saw that once with a loggerhead sea turtle that had built up gas under the shell. Uh, and unfortunately for the sea turtle once he would get gas up to the shell he would just float he had no control over his direction it was the waves and the wind that would carry him and um we we started to rehab him put him on antibiotics and as we put him in antibiotics um the veterinarian was ready to release him and we had a couple of veterinary students and they pulled me aside and goes you shouldn't release yet and i'm like why he says what if you've controlled the infection but you haven't eliminated it you're going to go out and release that turtle and have all the camera crews. And two days later, he's going to come floating up again. So mm-hmm. then we continued the antibiotics and then started doing deep water therapy, to try and use compression of the water to try and get all the, all the gases out of outside of the shell. Wow. Again, those are, those stories are endless. Yes, they are. That's not the only turtle that's happened to. Wow. Tur- with prosthesis turtles that have had cracked shells and repaired, you know, with uh, every imaginable process. Now we've got really good stuff to be able to do that. But these are all these are all important things for us to be able to look to the future. If we're not working with the animals, we're going to have a hard time, um, you know, if things get worse and learning how to manage care. And, um, and, and it would be it would be wonderful, you know, if the intention with an animal was to kind of get it halfway, but then have some kind of decision matrix of whether that animal is going to live his life out in the open water with with directed care uh, or at what point you want to release those animals um, because you feel a high level of comfort that they'll be able to survive. Yeah, like it's not just a publicity stunt where we take them out to the water's edge and I'll go, like you said, knowing that they're probably going to wash up dead someplace. And there are so many situations like that. Like you mentioned, you know, it's great to see animals in the wild if you can get to the wild. 
But when the first orca was taken into um, managed care, I think, didn't he get caught in a net? The original Ramu? Well, anyway, at I, that, I, at that I, time... I, you know, we, we, we've had so many cases where the argument continues to be um, what do they call that effect? You know, the, the, the prisoner syndrome, the, Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a name Stockholm. for it. Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm. Yeah. And again, that's, that's their answer. Once they've cut open the pen and the dolphins don't want to leave. Nobody wants to address the situation where the dolphin is one of the, a handful of species of wild animals. That's always on the brink of domestication. Uh, when I was doing eco cruises, in South Carolina, uh, we would occasionally, if I was doing an eco cruise, we would do like a beer cruise in the evening and watch the sunset, drive around the battleships, all the rest of it. And inevitably, we'll be out on the boat. They would know that I was kind of the staff biologist. And they would say, well, Mr. Thomas, can you find a dolphin? And I would get up on the front of the boat and I'd lick my finger and I'd put <laughs> it in the air and vibes, And I would tell the boat captain, they're right over there. And we'd drive over and they'd be surrounded in dolphins. And the people would just be like, it's amazing. I was just waiting for the shrimp boats to come in. Dolphins <laughs> are all on the back eating the trash. <gasps> that's yeah. funny. But, but again, you have an animal that's been living in cooperation for man, in some cases for thousands of years. I know there's that tribe somewhere in the island where they do cooperative fishing. Um, yeah. And again, that was just a modern strand feeding that ended up being uh, useful on for, for two species. Um, and again, the well, first time I saw a strand feed with 73 kids on Morris Island in South Carolina, it was, it was phenomenal. I would have preferred to have just stayed and watched it um, instead of pulling back kids because they all think they're at, at the dolphin show and want to pet these dolphins on the head while they're thrashing around grabbing mullet. Um, but, you know, in, even the 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 biology teacher that was teaching was doing that course. Um, mm -hmm. Do they still have the standard of learning in Virginia? That was yeah. like the big as thing. As far as I know, they do. So the standards of learning, our, our, our cruises had to meet so many of those criteria in order for them to pay for the thing. So we're sitting on the edge of the beach and I've got I've got, I don't know, 12 to 18 dolphins in a semicircle facing the beach. And the teacher says, what are they doing? And they're like hovering real still. And so I said, well, dolphins have been known to work cooperatively, kind of give off some sonic glass, change a bunch of the mullet that are leaving the estuary going around to the ocean side. And they'll strand feed as a strategy to eat. I didn't even finish the sentence. And there were all those dolphins on the beach and just hundreds of mullet. Um, wow. And that's an amazing thing. Yet that like is a, once a heritage a lifetime thing. opportunity to see. Well, and, and our question, my question immediately became, how often is this happening and why are we not capturing this information? Yeah. I tried to get a hold of Park and National Marine Fisheries. Nobody wanted to play the game. And this, is, to me, is a is a resource and a heritage issue. You know, yeah. I love taking inner cities from um, Charleston itself out on boat tours. So they didn't realize the richness of the ecology, um, you know, of, of their natural area, the ghost crabs. Um, seeing uh, loggerhead sea turtle nests um, that you know where the footprints were washed by the the tide, or yeah. being able to dig down the sand out of moon snail, and talk about how the moon snails you know you can now you can look at a at a at a whelk and see a hole drilled in a whelk that's the moon snail and he's attached and he's drilled the hole in order to digest the uh, all the rest of it. That that is these kids' heritage, and even yeah. though they live. Uh, uh, five miles from that, they've never seen it. I want them to know it so they want to protect their own ecology. Exactly. I mean, this is what we're both passionate about. And when we started out, uh, nobody cared about the well-being of orcas. They were seen as just fodder to shoot. You know, like... Uh, go ahead. They were pests to the fishermen yeah. in those. Yeah, they were going out and shooting at them. And even the shows, like I remember as a kid watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and uh, it was 
a lot about cowboy rodeo shows with animals and, you know, jumping on the annual animals and even capturing and shooting the animals and stuff like that. And the animals were portrayed as worthy adversary kind of thing. Interesting, but worthy adversaries. And you and I were part of the group of people that changed all that. And it's been really a bitter, eye-opening thing that special interests have been able to pivot that whole situation to make us and the effort to study and support these animals in managed care as well as in the wild, bad guys. And they're going to offer, you know, it's like get them back out into the wild at any expense, including their own lives. And let's just look at that for a minute with us. Yeah, our species evolved in, you know, hunter-gatherer places and everything else. But I don't want to be taken back to the jungle that I evolved from because I personally am not prepared for that. And I don't want to be taken back to New York City where I once lived. I'm not prepared for that either. It's like we have to. I'm prepared for that. Yeah, really. (laughs) We have to quit projecting and allow that different beings, different animals have different choices. Like you mentioned that the dolphins evolved with people. But for example, at National Zoo, my otters used to get loose all the time. And I didn't know for years. People would come back and report, oh, the otters are out. So I go running up there with my little flex net and I'd open up the exhibit to see, you know, like what the big escape hole where they dug out and the otters would be right there. They'd be like, Casey, what are we doing? I'm like, well, somebody said you were out, but you're not out. So have a good day. It was over a year before I saw them running around on top of the exhibit. And when I got to their door, they were inside again. And this is prime otter habitat. If these otters wanted to leave, just like the Katrina dolphins could have left, they would have left. Our turkey used to come out of the exhibit all the time. I didn't know that for a long time. Well, Scott, we actually have gone for much longer but there's so much more to talk about. Can we do it again soon? Oh, sure. Without a doubt. Yeah, because we haven't even talked about the programs and um, with the dogs and trying to produce dogs that are quality for um, helping the TSA keep the airport safe and yeah, I, again, there's, there's, everything is, is a matter of being afforded opportunity. Um, I think, you know, the one lesson that I've learned more than anything is learning how to work with that animal in front of you. Yeah. Uh, I remember talking the other day about the, uh, the misunderstood sea lion, you know, and teaching him to have a little self inhibition when he was eating instead of acting aggressively. Oh, man, you've just opened that up. You have to explain a little bit about that. Well, we got an animal. I don't remember where it came from. And again, at that point, I'm sure the same for you guys was, you know, there was plenty of free sea lions. Um, so we got this free sea lion. I, I think he was the only sea lion, which is, as you've already described, not good for sea lions at all. Very, very social creatures. Um, and uh, he had been raised somewhere in in on a, on an island kind of area and there was monkeys on the island and, you know, he just hadn't been, he hadn't been raised well. And so he had learned, you know, anybody that's worked with sea lions understands how a sea lion's neck can stretch out three, three feet in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And, you know, his answer to getting food was to try and aggress with his neck. Um, and, you know, he was just trying desperately to work. And so using protective contact, he was behind a, a pen door. I could put a, a smaller fish, a smelter, a capelin, just barely have the, the tail sticking out. 
push my hand up. Now he could still jut his neck and be aggressive, but all it would do is push my hand away. Yeah. Or he could walk up and very tenderly, you know, pull that um, out of my hand and eat. And now we got to a point where we had a relationship that we could build upon. And with that, you know, he learned a little bit of that self-inhibition and how to control. I don't think he was ever going to be one of those incredibly tactile, friendly sea lions that mm -hmm. many of us work with. But he was he was trainable um, and there was there was great work that could be done with him. Um, much. And, yeah. And, and, and we just have to deal with that animal in front of you. Um, yeah. You know, one, one of my friends from MAP who is now in their newer iteration, I think they got a bunch of Katrina money to build a facility further back from the coast. Um, and, you know, he was posting, I guess, a couple of days ago was National Sea Lion Day um, and pictures of babies and all the big animals and animals, you know, that we, we spent a lot of our lives with. And again, it, we wouldn't know what we know with those animals without having that level of contact, Yeah, you know, Watch those videos of the aggressive sea lions climbing up into boats, you know, grabbing stuff out of people's hands. Um, people understand that's that's trained behavior. Uh, it's just not trained behavior that was on a program or is very smart trained behavior. And right. again, by work with these animals and understanding there are personality differences, we can do a whole lot more. I know they had a large sea lion at Kings Island many, many years ago. And right next to the dolphin facility was a big pond. And he got out in the middle of the night, got in that pond and ate every koi that was in there. And like you, you've seen the fat sea lion who doesn't want to move anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was about three days before he was hungry enough to walk back, <laughs> go wow. back inside and, and get, get back on the schedule. So, wow. again, most of these animals, you know, they could be reintroduced. I think a lot of it depends on uh, the species. Um, and their the personal wants. Um, there's, there's so much that, that has to be considered, but you need to have the professionals doing that, not, again, a populist notion, not uh, an emotional plea for, you know, a single animal. Um, right. You know, I, I like to see all that investment, you know. When we've got genetic problems in the in the Labrador, like exercise-induced collapse or central nuclear myopathies, you yeah. know, I'd love to see that money go there. I mean, let's just look at, at bloat and how badly bloat affects the population of pet dogs. You know, I you know, I would rather see that money go there than, you know, people giving a whole bunch of money to an organization whose end goal is to make sure nobody keeps animals anymore. Right. And this is the fine print that a lot of people miss, even when we tell them over and over again, it's like, what is the motivation of these people that are arguing against animals being with people? They start out with exemplary places. No place is perfect, but yeah, they start out with the best of the best, knock them out, and because they have so much money. One of the things with Lolita, is in regular cases, in criminal cases, you can't try somebody for the same thing more than once. With Lolita, they would get, the um, activists would get shot down in court, but they had plenty of money, they just came back again. They get shot down, they came back again. It got to the point where the people that have Lolita, it's like they've got a mission. They can't sacrifice everything to one orca, no matter how much they love her. They've got to get out from under this situation, even though all of us in the business know that sending her out to a sea pen is not going to be a good solution. I, I pulled up the the uh, tax reports from three of the largest national animal welfare animal rights organizations. The amount of money is, is disgusting, and the amount of money that actually goes to help any animals is any animals, yeah, small. Um, and I I want people to be educated. I've always asked, and I know we've talked about it before. When I have students that ask me, you know, animal rights and animal welfare, they kind of want to take that you know, attitude, you, can, you can't do this. And my attitude has always been be educated on both sides of the argument. 
please read Animal Liberation. Don't argue against it if you haven't read it. Understand Peter Singer was an ethicist and a, and a philosopher, and he, he paints some incredible gray lines in his life as to what is acceptable and what isn't. But his argument is he, he's never had a dog or cat. He never wants to have a dog or cat. And so he posed a philosophical argument. You need to understand that. You have to understand as, as, as progressive as Peter Singer's ideas might seem, um, they're nothing compared to the agencies that kind of carry the torch for animal liberation per se. And we've got to be aware of this stuff. And, and, and again, the laws have changed. We have evolved. We've gotten better in animal care. I laugh all the time with the dog people because they always talk about uh, the Fuller and Scott studies that were done with uh, 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 critical periods of early development in canines. Mm. I always laugh when people brag about that work because I tell them that work could not be repeated today, could not be done, would never pass an IACUC. Uh, institutional uh, animal care. Yes. Um, and again, so much of that work is quite significant. Some of it is horribly misinterpreted. Please, please read the original work and understand it and then make better decisions. Um, and it's, that goes right down to the animal rights. You know, when, when I've got somebody who wants to give all their money to one of the national organizations and they've got a dachshund who's got a bad back and he's 15 pounds overweight, I'm like, you know, start at home before yeah. you start worrying about, you know, whatever yeah. wild animal you, you want to protect from uh, human beings, start at home and then let's get a higher level of care. Um, yeah. That's, that'd be difficult. I, I had, uh, I, there is a specific Central American company that, or country that last year passed uh, in their constitution that animals would be considered sentient beings, which again is a, is a difficult argument, difficult decision. Yet we had some canine handlers in that country who are some of the poorest animal caregivers I've ever seen. Mm. Um, you know, completely aware of, of how easy it is to overheat a dog when you're working it. Um, yeah. So, Again, we can pass the greatest laws in the world to protect if we don't have the basic care happening at the level of people who have the animals and care for the animals. That's we're right. In trouble. And if you have laws already on the books that um, protect children and you can't enforce those laws effectively and these children are, you know, malnourished, abused, whatever, all you're doing to add animals to the list is clogging up the court systems you're just making it so that the people that have really a lot of money because they're manipulating people to get that money can leverage this clogged court system against the interests of all of us and all of the animals it's like people really haven't let it sink in that these people are at advocating for the complete removal of animals from association with people that they will say animals are better off dead than in association with people. So we, we True story. And again, we, we, we are evolving as a society. There are, there are things that will continue to change. Um, some of it becomes quite frightening to me because there's a lot of stuff that has happened you know, within my lifetime that I was hoping would not happen until long after my lifetime. Yeah. Um, but we have the, the people who are the stewards for care of the animals in this in this country and in this world need to speak up against the people who who are, again, making an emotional plea uh, based on an agenda that they don't completely expose. And I, I think it's just awful. I, I heard a story of... Uh, the elephant walk taking place uh, with Ringing Brothers um, in your local area. And they, you know, traditionally would walk the elephants from the train station to wherever the venue was. And uh, animal rights organization had literally trained dogs to aggress and bark towards these large animals so that it would force the elephant handlers to use the bull hook. Um, and now Ringling Brothers no longer has elephants you know, in their, in their show department. And, and I they, tell you, they, they, I they had one of their 
He was one of the most impressive ladies I'd ever met in my life. Who was? One of the trainers from Ringling Brothers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they taught us so much about elephants. Zoo trainers and zookeepers um, have been so much in the debt of the circus staff. You know, you talk about living with animals. These people were just immersed for generations. Yep, yep. And Oh, gosh. Well, we've got to do this again because we've got to talk about the nosy law. Do you even know what that is? Uh-uh. Okay, I'll tell you next time. Okay. Scott, you have a great rest of the week, and thank you so much. It is such a pleasure. Anytime, Casey. Talk to you soon. All right. Everybody, thanks for joining us, and please like, share, give us comments. We want to know what you think, and please let us know if you take the advice of Scott and go look into these many, many things that we need to be educated on. All right, till next time. Bye-bye. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.